Amen. Amen. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Praise Band. Good morning. Good to see each of you. You can tell right away who the FSU fans are. They're all happy. All you Gators out there, I'm sorry. Alabama fans, man, I'm sorry too. I don't know what happened there. I know what you're thinking. Just preach. Don't be on that, all that stuff. We want to welcome you. <laughs> We want to welcome you to the service today. Thank you for being here. It's good to see uh, several guests, several from out of town. We have one young lady here from Hong Kong even. That's a tough drive every Sunday. <laughs> but we're glad, uh, we're glad each of you are here. I want to invite you to the book of Job again today. This is our second lesson of our series on the book. We are calling the series Once Upon a Time in the Land of Us. If you missed last week, you can catch that one online on our website. And I won't go into all the details again today. I won't rehash all that has to do with the land of us and where we think it was and all that. But, um, but we'll talk about Job a little bit. This is, a, this, is kind of a, this is kind of a heavy message. I know when I say that, it's, uh, I sound like maybe I'm from the 60s or something, but it's a, it's a message that's, um, it's a difficult message. And as a pastor, sometimes, you know, you struggle over whether you're connecting with people when you have something that God's laid on your heart. I want to be careful here today. You know, years ago, you'd go into a bakery and you'd order a cake and you'd tell the people what it is you want on the cake. Now you go into it and, and to be very clear, you write everything out, you know, and you hand them the piece of paper. Well, that still doesn't always work. And some of you may have seen these pictures, but let me show you this first one uh, real quick. Happy birthday, Daniel, in Italian, French, and English. That's obviously not what the person wrote. This next person intended for just to be a cake and they put, leave blank. <laughs> my favorite of the pictures I saw was this one, CC, just like that, no periods. <laughs> you would think somebody would ask, you know what I'm saying? I, so you struggle as a pastor to make sure you connect. It's my desire to connect with you today and make sure that you get the message God has, has prepared. We're gonna be in one of the toughest passages, I think, in all the book of Job. Probably, I, I should say, in all the Bible. This is the text where he begins to lose everything, it seems, except for his health. That's attack, attacked in the next chapter. So uh, this is the passage where uh, he loses his finances and his family. And it, it's, it's tough. This is a hard one. And if you here today have lost somebody in your family, maybe a child even, uh, you can relate to some of this in here. And it's difficult for those who have never suffered that pain to imagine what that pain is like. And so I hope that somehow through all of this, and I'd like to ask you to join me in prayer that this might be the case, that the Holy Spirit would provide comfort and encouragement and guide us through this lesson, which again, to me, it's just a bit of a heavy message, but pray with me, okay? Father, we come to you today and we ask for your blessings. We ask for the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we read in your word how that he is the comforter. So we pray, God, for your comfort. And Lord, I pray increase our understanding and our, our ability to pray for one another that might need, uh, might need that, God. I, I pray that you'd take us through this lesson today and that you would receive the honor and the glory from our lives and Lord, that you'd help us to understand the truths you have for us in this chapter, in this lesson today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
you have a study sheet, we're going to look at three observations. We're going to start in verse number nine. And we dealt with this verse last week a little bit, but I'd like to go back a little in order that we might cover everything. So verse nine of Job chapter one, if you're there, say, I'm there. Good. Verse number nine. So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and he, his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. It's important that we uh, remind ourselves that before Job loses his finances and his, his family, before he is attacked in those ways, his character is attacked. That is the first attack that Satan brings on the scene. He is basically saying to God this, he only loves you and serves you because you're good to him. You take away those possessions and you take away the blessings that you've given to him and he will curse you to your face. Now is a good time for us to stop and ask ourselves why we serve God. Why do we follow the Lord? What is it in our life that we are motivated by and moved by uh, to show our adoration of him? Is it wrapped up in the things that we have? If God were to somehow withhold his blessings, would you then withhold your praise? You see, the whole story that we're dealing with here, at least at the beginning, has to do with Satan standing before God, along with the other angelic realm that has fallen, and all angels, the sons of God, they're called in chapter one. They come and they give an account before God. I think it's important that we note right off our first observation, if you would, if you want to fill in the blank, Job's demise was planned. Satan is a strategist. He plans things out. You might remember that in the, in the context of the story in, in chapter one, that God is talking with Satan and God is the one who says, have you considered my servant Job? It wasn't the devil that brought him up, but the answer particularly what we have just read, tells us that the answer to that question is yes. I have considered him. I've considered him because you have built a hedge about him. And because you've been treating him so well, because you have been so good to him, that is the only reason he is serving you. If you take those things away from him, the true Job, that what's on the inside is going to come out and he's going to curse you. That's what Satan says. So that's his, his, uh, his approach. And so he wants to attack. And so then God responds in verse 12, and the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. And so the Bible says, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. It's important for us to understand that whether you woke up this morning looking for a fight does not matter, you got one. Whether you wake up tomorrow morning looking to do some kind of battle with the devil, you don't, have to, you don't have to go looking for it. He's been looking for you. He's been trying to figure out ways that he can get to you. And he takes really good notes about what aggravates you the most. He knows what buttons to push and when to push them. So that somehow in your life, you begin to look at God as being unjust, unfair. And you begin to blame him for something or you charge him with wrong, which is toward the end of this chapter, we learn is what Job would not do. He would not do. 
So let's talk more about this thing of, of uh, Satan's approach to us. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, we learn something of his status currently, what he does. You know, there are a lot of people who believe, as I've shared with you before, that somehow the devil's down there in hell eating his deviled eggs and deviled food cake and just sitting there not doing a whole lot. And, and that's not the case at all. On the contrary, the Bible says he walks around this earth uh, seeking whom he may devour. And so here we find out that God has asked him, where have you been? And he begins to answer, well, I've been down there looking around, doing all over the earth. I've been going around. And now he comes up to heaven. And in Revelation 12 and verse 9, we find a passage where he is finally, eventually going to be kicked out. This is future tense now that we're about to read, okay? So we have the original fall of Lucifer, Isaiah chapter 14, when he fell from heaven. But he still goes back and forth. The book of Job tells us that. He comes back and forth. Revelation describes to us further what he is doing when he is in heaven. So he's in heaven and then he's on the earth and he goes back. Keep in mind that Satan is not God. He does not have the attributes of God. He cannot be everywhere at once. And so he goes back and forth. The Bible tells us in Revelation 12 verse 9, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who have accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. So the day will come when Michael is given, Michael being the archangel, is given the task of throwing him out of heaven and he is no longer allowed to return. But until then, the Bible says, he accuses the brethren day and night. So just like he's doing with Job, he does with us. Just like he comes before God and he says, God, I can get that guy to curse you, he calls our name off. And maybe when we do something we ought not do, he points that out. And we've talked about that before, but I want you to get the, the understanding of what he's trying to do, what he's, uh, that his strategy and his attack is. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So the Bible says, listen, you're in for an attack. The devil is like a roaring lion, so be aware he's out to devour. That's what he'll do. If he can destroy your marriage, he will. If he can destroy your testimony, he will. If he can keep you from serving God and rather uh, fall away completely from God, that's exactly what he would like to see done. And he has a strategy. He has a plan. Make no mistake about it. He doesn't approach anything haphazardly. He's taking notes. Know what you respond to. He's out trying to establish in your life something called strongholds. Now, a stronghold is an area of your life that he affects periodically from time to time, maybe over the years. And it seems to be something that he gets you with each and every time. Unless we learn to deal with the strongholds. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. So it's important that we identify them and understand that this is what the devil has done. He's got fortified areas in our life. That's why you keep dealing with the same problem over and over again in your life. And you're saying, why can't I, why can't I ever conquer this thing? Well, it's a stronghold and they have to be approached differently. 
Paul said on another occasion, as he wrote uh, to the uh, church at Corinth, he said, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. The word devices, the Greek word that's used there means evil purposes. So the devil sets out each day to figure out a way that he can get you to do what he wants you to do instead of doing what you know God would have you do. It's important we understand that we are under attack. When we understand that, we know what we can do. We can put on the armor of God. Can I get an amen? amen? God gives us that armor in the book of Ephesians. I'll not take time to read the whole passage to you, but I'd like to read a portion of it. Ephesians 6 verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. I want to draw your attention to a couple of the pieces of the armor without reading the whole text to you. And I want you to imagine with me for a moment what difference these, these pieces might make. For instance, it's said that the battlefield of spiritual warfare is the mind. And the Bible tells us that you have the helmet of salvation that you can put on. That is, God can help you protect your thoughts. It is your thoughts from where the, the fears originate and the worry and the difficulties and, and sometimes the pre-planning of doing the wrong thing. It all starts somewhere in there with the thought process. Yeah. And God said, I'll give you a piece of armor for that. What about the way we feel? You say, I can't control the way I feel sometimes. And, and those feelings might make us do things that, that uh, bring dishonor instead of honor to God. Well, you're given a breastplate of righteousness and it helps protect the heart. The point I'm trying to make with you is this, that if you will actively seek to put on the armor of God, you will do better at standing against the attacks of the adversary. And the truth is the attacks are coming. Whether you, whether you know they're coming or not, they're coming. Whether you planned on it or not, he's planned on them. The adversary has planned on them and they're going to come. So be prepared and be ready for that type of spiritual warfare. Job endured them. And may I say to you, I find it interesting that sometimes in our lives, and we're about to approach a point in this chapter where I think this is all Job could do. There are times in your life, and I'm glad the Bible says what it says about put on the armor of God and having done all, stand. Because there are times in our lives where that's all we can do. You don't feel like you can progress any further. You don't feel like you can gain any ground. So just stand. Just stand. Now that is going to uh, be uh, uh, something that you will be thankful for after the storm has passed and after battle has passed, and it will pass. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But the second observation, make note of it with me if you would please, is Job's difficulties were severe. So his demise was planned and then his difficulties are severe. And that is probably the understatement of the day, that his difficulties were severe. Let me show you some of them. Let's begin reading down in verse number 13. There was a day. Let me, let me pause just a moment with you. In my study, as I was preparing for this, this phrase kind of slipped by me. And this morning, actually very early in the morning, as I was reading over my notes, and I, I read this text again for I don't know how many times it's been I've read it. But I looked at that and I thought to myself, this is interesting, there was a day. This is a day unlike any other in Job's life we're about to read. This is a day unlike any time he would ever have 
There's something about horrible things that happen in our life. We remember those days. And this was a day. This was a day like maybe some of you have faced, but it is certainly a day that none of us ever want to face. It is a day where one event after another event comes and we begin to see what we will call a trial of his faith. We're going to identify that in a little while further and we'll talk about how you recognize a trial of your faith. But let's take a look at the day as it begins to unfold. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Let me pause for a moment and remind you of something we said last week. That apparently his children at least the boys are old enough to dwell in their own homes, their own houses, whatever that is. Some have suggested that they are tent-like, others that uh, they are made of wood and their structures, but nonetheless, they, they lived, no doubt, on Job's property. He was a wealthy man. He had a lot of land in the land of Uz, and so here, here they, they dwelt. We know this because the Bible says that from time to time, they would go, that is, the, the siblings would get together, and they would go into one of the houses of the young men, and they would invite their sisters, indicating that the boys are old enough, they're adults, they're old enough to have their own place, Apparently they are unmarried and without children because we find nothing at the beginning of this book that speaks of grandchildren or daughter-in-laws, but they seem to have their own places. They're old enough to do that, but the daughters appear to abide at home where they are invited out to be with their siblings. So the Bible says on this day they gathered in the oldest, in the oldest son's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, there are four stages to this tragic day. This is the first one, the Sabaeans. These are raiders from the land of Sheba. They, they descended, they're Arabs who were desert dwellers. And, and so they've come and they've taken the oxen and they've taken the donkeys. Now the Bible tells us earlier that Job had 500 yoke of oxen. 500 yoke of oxen, that's a thousand oxen. A yoke of oxen is two and they equally paired them. If you were a wealthy individual, you had pairs of oxen and the yoke was the instrument that held them together and they would plow together. So they were basically of the same size, the two would be, and about the same strength. Otherwise, you would have an uneven yoke. So a thousand oxen have been stolen by the Sabaeans is what the Bible is telling us. The donkeys, we read earlier, uh, matter of fact, you could go back to uh, verse number three, also his possession, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. So he had 500 female donkeys. And so the Bible tells us that these were taken and, and, and they've been stolen from Job. And that his servants, we don't know how many servants he allocated to watch over the thousand oxen and the 500 donkeys. We don't know. But we know that they were killed all except for one. I find this interesting because one of the things we need to note about this trial is that the devil now has been given permission. Remember, he's been allowed to cause this kind of havoc in Job's life. That God might receive the glory, but nonetheless, it, it has been allowed now, having said this, we find that the devil is using people in this instance. You see, the devil will use people. You, you don't need to call them out or point at them or look at them right now, but 
The devil will use people. As a matter of fact, in a few moments, in the third of these tragic events, we find another group that he uses. And I believe sometimes I think people don't even know he's using them. He doesn't even know. People don't even know. But the Bible says we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. So even if you think that he's using people and people are the source of your, your aggravation and frustration, I suggest to you there is something else involved. And the problem is not with flesh and blood, but principalities, spiritual rulers in high places and wickedness in high places. Then we find these words, verse 16, and we begin to see one of the first steps that identify this as a trial of faith and not just an average trial. There is a difference. While he was still speaking, verse 16 says, while he was still speaking, Another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. The fire of God. I find this interesting. It's a Hebraism, I'm told, and the way this is used, that is, that it was of such might, it was inexplainable other than to say it was something like God would produce. But we know that it was not the fire from God. We know that. Because it was the devil who brought it. Now this poses a problem for some of us because uh, even in the world that we live in, when there is a disaster that is a natural disaster, whether it be an earthquake or a, a lightning strike or uh, a tsunami or, or regardless, we tend to call those things acts of God. We have a lot of people in our church that uh, are involved in, maybe in the insurance business or at least you've had to deal with insurance, particularly with hurricanes and other issues. You understand that, the act of God. Well, I want to suggest to you that not all natural disasters are an act of God. And in just a moment, we're going to read about another one. I'm here to tell you that the devil can control many of those factors as well, apparently, according to the Scripture. And so we find that this fire has come and this fire, whether it be lightning or whatever it may be that caused this, uh, it, it was a, a, a horrific thing. And the Bible tells us that the sheep were uh, destroyed. There are 7,000 sheep that Job had and his servants were consumed in this fire as well. And then we find these words again, verse 17. While he was still speaking. You ever been in a situation where you thought it cannot get worse only to find out it is getting worse? Job is taking all this in, man. He's just learned of his loss and the loss keeps mounting. Well, he might have thought when he lost the oxen, at least I've got the sheep. And now he's lost the sheep. So his oxen are gone and, and his uh, donkeys are gone and his sheep are gone. But think about how he must have felt about all of the servants that he had lost. And the loss begins to mount. And while he, is still, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. He had 3,000 camels. Ships in the desert, they were called. Very valuable. Very valuable. Gone. Taken. Stolen. 
You ever feel like this just ain't right, man? Life is unfair. Job could have felt that way, could have said that. Then the Bible says this. Look at it with me. Verse 18. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and your daughters. Now the Bible doesn't tell us this, but I have to believe that his heart probably at those words sunk. Anybody that has ever been a parent of a child who has begun to drive or been out late knows what it is to have the phone ring and the fear come across you to find out whether or not they're safe. You can't wait for the time that the car pulls up in the driveway and the final door is closed and they enter the house and you know they're okay. Parents spend hours upon hours up and listening for the child to make sure the child is okay. Things the children know nothing of until one day they become a parent and find out for themselves. So the word comes, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly, the news comes, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. This pain is indescribable. This, this trial is beyond anything he has heard. I think he was devastated to learn that he had lost his financial well-being, that he was now broke. And, and literally, your wealth was associated with all of those things that we've mentioned. So he has lost all of that. I think he was devastated, but nothing could compare to this news. Nothing. How do you recognize a trial of your faith? Let me give you this before I go any further and then we'll come back to this thought. There are four characteristics of a trial of your faith and I take these from 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 6 and 7 if you know that passage. In this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while if need be you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're told there's a purpose to all of this, and it comes back to the glory of God. That fits with our story in the book of Job. Can I get an uh-huh? That fits because this is all about bringing God glory in the way that he handles all of this. But a trial of your faith has several characteristics. The first thing that we note is it is seasonal. Now for a time, I believe the old King James says for a season. There's a wonderful passage of scripture. It appears many, many times a phrase in the Bible that you probably look over. And I would encourage you from now on not to look over it. And it's a little phrase that says something like, and it came to pass. And it came to pass. Most of the time when we are in our trial, when we are going through a trial of our faith, we think there is no end. We do not remember that there can be only a season of it, that God will ease it up. We think it's all over. And so I remind you that a trial of your faith is seasonal. It's for a time. But then it is needful. 
Now, although it is needful, it is difficult for us to always understand the need. Maybe it's for our growth. Maybe it's for his glory. The Bible actually tells us in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse number 3, we begin reading, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of God abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. You say, what are you trying to say? I'm saying that sometimes God develops us through these trials to the point that we become ministers on his behalf. That only those who have experienced certain traumatic experiences can identify with others who are going through it. God may be turning you into a minister, into somebody that can use the comfort that God has given to help someone else out who may be going through the exact same thing. So we know that they're needful. And then we read that they are grievous. The word is lepeo in the Greek. It means with heaviness and sorrow, much sorrow. I said to you as I began this message that this is a heavy message, and it is. I think this is one of the reasons why I've never preached a series on the book of Job. I, I find the book somewhat depressing. You can pray for me, but I do. I find it that way. I'm just being transparent with you. I know that God gets the glory, and I know they all live happily ever after, after God blesses, but I'm telling you, it's a horrific thing that he goes through. But I know that some of our people go through this. I know some of our people are going through this. I know some people may go through this, and I pray none of us ever do go through it, if it could possibly be helped. You say, what are you getting at? I'm saying it's heavy, man. It's heavy. It's a heaviness. There's, a, there's something about it that just weighs on you. If you yourself have had the losses, you understand what this is like. Can you imagine with me for a moment? Maybe you can. Maybe it's a reality for you what it is to lose a child or what it is to have had everything stripped away from you where you have nothing available and you're starting completely over. All of your finances gone. Everything you had gone. That's where Job was. And that's a trial of your faith. A trial of your faith is different than ordinary trials because you have no resources that can tap into, that you can tap into. You have nothing you can rely on, absolutely nothing. You, you have to just step out in faith because you don't have anything to fall back on except God. It's a trial of your faith. And then the last characteristic is one we've cited already but not named, and that is literally they come in numerous areas. A trial of your faith will be from every direction under the sun. One man comes in, and while he's still speaking, another comes in. And while he is still speaking, a third comes in. And while he is still speaking, the most horrifying news of all comes in. And it is one after another after another. And you say, how can this be? How can it, how, why all of these things at once? Welcome to the trial of your faith. It is no ordinary trial. Thank the Lord. It doesn't happen very often. But when it happens, it happens with purpose. A purpose that many times, and let me go ahead and get this out, you may never understand. Depending on how you read the book of Job, I don't know. Most Bible scholars would tell you Job never got an answer to the one question he had, which is why. 
When he asked the question, so to speak, God just said, where were you when I made everything? As if to say, who are you to question me? Amen? I know that doesn't set well with all of us, but the truth of the matter is that, that you may get to heaven before you ever understand why. So what does Job do? I think Job goes through the normal things. We're not told a lot of this, but psychologists today have, uh, have made uh, a, a lot of studies on, on the loss and the grief that is here. I want to read to you what one has written. The worst thing that can happen to any parent is the loss of a child. It is known as the ultimate tragedy, regardless of the age of that child. Grief can be, uh, the, the grief can vary depending on how the child has died. Some children will die from violence, others from cancer, others from medical diseases. There are also miscarriages and stillbirths. These tend to be the less visible losses, but can be just as painful. Parents who have lost a child have suffered pain that is indescribable, this author writes. They suffer depression, anger, guilt, despair, and loneliness. Parents speak of being reunited with their child one day. Though they are not suicidal, many parents say they cannot wait until they die so they can be reunited with their child, expressing a longing for that reconnection. Studies show that when a child has been lost, there are nine stages of grief. I'm going to give them to you. You can write them down. Some of you may be in some of these yourself and others, you may know somebody who is. The first, the first stage is shock. Literally, you just feel numb. The second is denial. Well, this can't be. It just simply is not. Do you think Job probably went through some of these? I think he did. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly, but I'm telling you that even as believers, you and I are not, are not somehow uh, alienated from this. We do not get a, a, a get-out-of-jail-free card, so to speak. We don't have a get-out-of-grief-free card. We'll go through the same type things, and I believe Job did. And may I say to you also, while, while I talk about these things, one particular person in the Bible that gets a pretty bad rap is uh, Job's wife. And I'm telling you, she suffered these things. She suffered the loss with her husband. So there's shock and there's denial. There's replay. In replay, you ask yourself, what if? What if I had done this? What if I had done that? What, what could we have done? Then there's yearning. You've gotten past some of the denial and now it's a matter of, God, I just wanted more time. Just more time. Then there's confusion. Confusion literally is a haze, a, a memory loss that begins to take place in a person's life. I've talked with many and I've ministered to many who have had that at the loss of a loved one. And they say, Pastor, I don't know what's going on. I can't remember anything. I try to do this and I, I find out I've left this on the stove or I've done this or I, I, I can't find my keys. I don't know where I put them. And the confusion is part of the stages of grief. There is guilt. His guilt is six on the list. What could I have done? Was there anything I could have done to have prevented this? What if Job said, no, not today. You can't go to their house. What if Job had been more astute and, 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 and saw the weather pattern and thought that maybe this was a bad day? What if Job had said, we should have used more timber on that house, stronger timber. We should have done some tests. We should have, we should have, we should have. Guilt takes over until we reach a point of powerlessness. 
powerlessness just says, I can't do anything, and you sit, you're almost back into the numb stage where you say, you know, I can't do anything. I wanted to control this. I wanted to do something. How can I? I can't go back. I I can't go forward. I can't do anything, and I'm powerless. That powerless tends to have a frustration with it and a, a sense of aggravation that yields to anger. And if we're not careful, that anger is directed toward God because even though God may not have caused it, he allowed it. And since we know God can do anything, we don't understand why God would allow it. So we become angry, even with God, if we're not careful. And then in the case of a child, particularly a young child, we have this loss of hope that people deal with. This is not only the loss of the person at the moment, but the loss of all the plans and the dreams that a person may have for the future as that child would grow. And so I remind you today that even though we may be subject to a number of normal physical stages of grief, I remind you of what the Apostle Paul said when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica. He said, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those which have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. I want to remind you that you can sorrow. That's part of it, obviously. We will sorrow, but you do not have to sorrow as those who have no hope. I don't know what people without God actually do sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, and what, how horrible it is even for the believer to go through some of these things, but to not have a faith in God, to not have a hope in Christ, to not have the hope of heaven is, is to me uh, something that is just difficult to understand and, and for me to conceive. So remember, you do not have to sorrow as those who have no hope. Studies show that it seems to help people who have lost a loved one, particularly a child, to gather with others who have lost children and glean from them and find strength with them. And so today, as your pastor, I want to throw something out at you just so you can take it with you before I go into the last point. And that is I want to remind you of somebody who knows exactly how you feel. If you're one of those who have lost a child, I want to remind you that God gave his only son. And he gave his only son to die on the cross for you and for me. And no one understands that loss better than God. And so I want you to know at any time, at any place, you can go to God. And I suggest to you that that is exactly what Job does. Can I show it to you? Verse number 20. After receiving the news of his children, verse 20 says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. Now let me pause there for just a moment. The word worship, by the way, if you want to fill in your notes, is the word shaka in the Hebrew, and it means to fall down before in homage of royalty. So this is a reverential bowing before God. It is in a sense of saying before God, God, you are God, you are sovereign, you are God and I am not. You understand and I do not. That's what's happening in the text. Having said that, point number three in our notes is Job's default was to worship. What is your default? Everybody, when they encounter a trial in their life, particularly a a severe trial, they have a default. Some people fall back 
and they fall back on alcohol and they fall back on drugs and they fall back on something, maybe even sex and immoral behavior so that somehow they escape at least for a moment, a temporary escape. Those things yield nothing but more sorrow. Job's default was to fall back in worship. I suggest to you that this is not the kind of worship that sometimes we think of when we think of worship. Typically when we think of worship, we think of celebration, praise. I, I don't believe for one moment that Job is bowing before God and thanking him for taking his children. I don't believe that. I do not believe that. There are other aspects of worship. What are they? Well, there's, there's an attitude of adoration. There is a, uh, for who he is, there, there are certainly your requests that you make known to him. There is acceptance, which is a portion of this, an acknowledgement that you know he is God. He understands, but you do not. And then there is this attitude in worship of residing in him. This is like a child who gets hurt crawling up into the lap of his dad. Children are funny to watch sometimes. They'll fall down and get hurt. And the first thing they want is mommy or daddy. And they go running to them. Am I right? You know what I'm talking about. You've seen it. And as soon as dad picks them up or mom picks them up, everything's okay. They still got the big old crocodile tear coming down their face. And they got a little skint knee. But now everything's okay. Why? Because they're being held. If I could say to you, ladies and gentlemen, the worship that Job was doing, I believe with all my heart is, I think he's crawled up into the one he called Abba Father, just to be held. And there is nothing wrong with that. That's an important thing for us to do. There's nothing wrong with telling God how you feel. He already knows. He will never drop his jaw in shock and awe at you when you say, God, I don't understand what's going on down here. He already knows. So I would encourage you to follow his lead, Job's lead, in that he worshiped. There are two statements that he makes that I find very interesting statements. Before we leave here today, let me focus on them with you for a moment. Verse 21 says, And he said, Naked I came out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The two statements I want you to see is the first and the second of those three. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. Here's what I believe he's saying. I recognize God. There is a difference in the temporal and this life here and what is eternal and life with you. Later we will study that Job himself said, I know that my Redeemer lives and that I shall see him face to face. Here we see what he came into the world was, was nothing. What he will leave with is nothing. But he seems to have this level of acceptance to this before God. You know, Jesus taught the parable uh, in the Gospels, over in the Gospel of Luke in the 12th chapter. He talked about the wealthy man, the rich man, who had developed so many things. He didn't know what to do with them. He had such wealth. And so he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down the barns that I have now and I'll build bigger barns so that I can just store more stuff. And, and that's what I'll do. And then Jesus said in the parable, he said, uh, what a fool he was because this night, he said, you're so soul will be required of you. And then he asked this question, then whose things shall these things be? Or then who will have these things? So who are you going to leave all that stuff to? You can't take it to heaven with you. You can't take it into eternity with you. You can't be all wrapped up in what you have and believe that that is who you are. 
And Job said, I realize that. That who Job was was not wrapped up in all the things he had accumulated. And then the second statement, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Now this is a difficult thing, but I believe there are two thoughts here. One is that of origin, the Lord gave. The second is that of ownership, the Lord has taken away. We have children in this world that we live in. If we are blessed with children, we recognize that they're from God. We turn around and as Christians, most of the time, we dedicate those children. We've had this stage filled with babies who are dedicated to the Lord and we give those children to the Lord, but then something happens. We sometimes think that they are ours when in fact they're only loaned to us. They belong to God. And if God chooses to take one for whatever reason, even though we do not understand what that reason is, Job was saying he has the right to do that, although it's not what I want done. So then the Bible says, and it's a remarkable verse, verse 22, in all this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. You ever been at such a place in your life when you charged God with wrongdoing? You ever been such a trial in your life when you said, look, I, I don't understand what's happening here and God is at fault, God is to blame? Job sets an example for us that says otherwise. I wanna close with a story about a man that some of you may have heard of, Horatio Spafford was his name. Spafford was a successful real estate developer in Chicago back in the late 1800s. In 1871, he had a child of a very young age that died of pneumonia. Later in the same year, the great Chicago fire wiped out his real estate dealings and he found himself virtually bankrupt. Over the next two years, he began to rebuild his business and it had taken such a toll on him and his wife that he decided that they needed to get away for a little while and so he had scheduled for his wife and four children along with him to go to Great Britain. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist of years past, was a personal friend of Spafford's. He was conducting an evangelistic crusade in Great Britain and Spafford said, we wanna come, get some rest and we'll help you with the crusade. At the last moment, a real estate dealing came up with his business that he had to tend to. So he put his wife and his four children on the ship, the Villa du Havre. It set sail in mid-November, 1873. Four days out, the ship was hit by a Scottish vessel by the name of the Loch Earn and went down. Only a few passengers on that ship survived, one of them was Mrs. Spafford. When she was rescued and taken to shore, she sent a telegram back to her husband. It read simply, saved alone. What shall I do? Horatio Spafford is said to have gotten the very next ship out. He boarded that vessel and set sail to join his wife and mourn the loss of their children together. When they reached the point that the ship had gone down, the captain called for him and explained to him that this was the area, the spot in the Atlantic Ocean that the ship had sank. 
Later, God would bless Mr. and Mrs. Spafford with another child. That daughter tells this story, that there in that spot, while he observed the area where his children were lost, he sat down and penned the words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. For those of you that have suffered severely, and you find no answer to the question why, I would ask you and I will pray for you in that when you cannot know why, you can at least have a peace. A peace that God will provide according to Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. If you're enduring that, I invite you to pray and talk it over with the Lord. If you know somebody who is going through that, I invite you to pray on their behalf. Let's pray together. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we come to you today.